Sunday morning at 3 a.m. Higher Reasoning Reggae is dedicated to bringing international reggae word and sound power to the massive airing early Sunday mornings at 3 a.m. Only on KVOO Portland. Today on Wings. My name is Ricky Ajima, and I am a Yonsei, fourth generation Japanese American. As a descendant of World War II Japanese and Japanese American incarceration, I feel an obligation to fight for equity and justice for all, especially for those at the margins. We are not free until all are free. There's a river of birds in migration, a nation of women with wings. Welcome to Wings, a series of news and current affairs programs by and about women around the world produced and distributed by the Women's International News Gathering Service. Nisei and Sansei, Japanese-American Women, Looking Back and Ahead, first aired on March 8, 2021, as part of International Women's Day Special Programming on Community Radio KPFA-FM, Berkeley, California. This International Women's Day segment you're about to listen to highlights the experiences of Nisei and Sansei women, second and third generation Japanese Americans, respectively, who survived World War II incarceration. Today, we get to hear from participants in Interfaith Movement for Human Integrity's recent vigil, Reparations as a Spiritual Practice, Lessons from the Japanese Experience. Speakers Yumi Hata, Chizu Omori, Eiko Yamamoto Matsuoka, Gloria Morita, and Judy Furuichi share their personal accounts of their experiences of incarceration, redress and reparations, connections to the civil rights movement, and their solidarity with Black and Indigenous people, and their fight for reparations in this country today. We then get to hear from speakers at JSA Oakland's Celebrating Our Classics 2021 event. Speakers Eiko Yamamoto Matsuoka, Rose Mieta, Kuki Takeshita, and Yae Wada share some of their fondest memories growing up, what life during World War II incarceration was like, and what their proudest achievements are. What an honor it is to hear from these amazing, inspiring women. Finally, I close this segment by honoring my ancestors and connecting the struggles for Japanese and Japanese-American redress and reparations to the struggle for Black and Indigenous reparations today. Enjoy. On the afternoon of December 7th, 1941, five men in a large gray sedan drove up to the Matano household in Waianae, Hawaii. While two went and guarded the back door, the three others stood at the front of the house and ordered Koni Matano, my maternal grandfather, 
then the 49-year-old father of eight, to come out into the yard. Albert Matano, the eldest son, remembers the submachine guns the men toted and how they stumbled over pronunciation of his father's name. While his eight children and wife watched silently from the house veranda, that men identified themselves as agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, then proceeded to thoroughly search Koning. They refused to answer his angry questions and did not read him his rights. After Koning had requested his wallet to be brought to him by his children, he was swept away in the FBI car, his only possessions, the clothes he had on at the time. A poem from Mitsue Yamada, entitled Evacuation. As we boarded the bus, bags on both sides, I had never packed two bags before on a vacation lasting forever. The Seattle Times photographer said, smile. So I obediently smiled and the caption the next day read, note, smiling faces, a lesson to Tokyo. My name is Chizu Omori. I am one of those who was rounded up and put into a concentration camp for Americans of Japanese descent during World War II. 120,000 of us were held for several years in these camps, and as we have come to understand, this was a gross violation of the Constitution and the laws of the United States. Almost all of us lost everything because of that government action, and particularly our freedom and control over our lives. That was unfortunate, but justified by the Supreme Court as a matter of military necessity. Almost no one publicly spoke of it for years. Our community did not have the resources or the will to complain about it, and people went about the work of surviving and reestablishing themselves in American society. Why didn't we complain? Well, fighting with the American government seemed totally impossible. It was during the 60s that vast movements took form in our country the civil rights movement, the fight against Vietnam, and other such movements inspired Asian Americans to re-examine our own history, and the injustice of our incarceration became a focal point. We began to understand that what had happened to us was so egregious that it was a threat to some basic understanding that we have about the rule of law and the rights of citizens. So a campaign was mounted to ask for an apology and redress for violations. The Black Civil Rights Movement gave us the will and the determination to pursue redress. Because I was so young during the period of incarceration, I did not have a good understanding of what we as a community had suffered. As an adult, it became much clearer. So I joined the struggle for redress in Seattle in several ways, uh, fighting for legislation through Congress and as a named plaintiff in a class action suit, William Horry versus the United States, a class action suit that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. For the community though, many were very reluctant to support these efforts, but redress became a vehicle to speak out and tell the world what had happened to us, what a hard thing it was to be thought of to be so dangerous that we had to be locked up and that we were not Americans. Redress was a means to heal, to tell the truth, and to come to a reconciliation with our country, which had treated us so badly. 
We still have some unfinished business concerning Japanese Latin Americans who were kidnapped and held in Department of Justice camps, and our government has never acknowledged and has never properly given reparations for these people. Redress also opened up to me the history of racism in our country, the treatment accorded peoples of color from the extermination of uh, Native Americans, the enslavement of Africans, and exploitation of brown people from south of the border. Reparations for others in America transcends specific groups. Reparations is a matter for the soul of our country. Our ancestors are guilty of committing horrible racist crimes and violations of the ideals and laws of the country, and reparations would go a long way to addressing these issues and to begin a healing. As Tanehasi Coates has said, reparations would begin a spiritual renewal for our country. And I, having seen what Redress did for my community, wholeheartedly support the movement for reparations for others who have suffered. This could be a possibly wonderful undertaking by persons of goodwill to understand and redress the sins of the past. We have this opportunity and we need to seize it and run with our hearts to work for this major undertaking. A poem from Mitsue Yamada, The Question of Loyalty. I met the deadline for alien registration once before, was numbered, fingerprinted, and ordered not to travel without permit. But aliens still they said I must forswear allegiance to the emperor. For me, that was easy. I didn't even know him. But my mother, who did, cried out, If I sign this, what will I be? I am doubly loyal to my American children, also to my own people. How could double mean nothing? I wish no one to lose this war. Everyone does. I was poor at math. I signed my only ticket out. So that's the official that's the official letter from the president. This is the official letter from George Bush dated October 1990. I was really glad that the apology was made. You know. It was long overdue, but I'm glad it was done. I appreciated the apology. I'm only sorry that my husband was not living to accept it, as he was completely upset when the FBI came and took his father away, simply because he was a kendo instructor. The 20,000 we got was only for those who are uh, living. And unfortunately, those who passed away did not qualify that amount at all. And I think it was really kind of sad because I think they deserved it more than us children. With, with our experience, it, it was just in a, such a short time, there was so much loss. We had to be compensated for something. So much loss in such a short period of time. Yeah. And it took, you know, even on, on our farm, it took almost 20 years to get the place back in order. 
to catch up. I appreciated the $20,000, but I didn't think that it paid for all that we went through, especially for my parents. There has to be public apology from the government and a check. Uh-huh, uh-huh. For the, for the, the um, African Americans and the indigenous people, I think uh-huh. it has to be both. The experience of of the internment for me, I, w- I was so young as I was born there in Topaz. It really came back to me one night. Actually, we were going to take a vote about becoming a sanctuary uh, church, which meant that we would be open to receiving and accompanying uh, immigrants through our church ministries. As we were all discussing it, some there were some who who you know questioned the whether we should or not. And when it came to my turn, I I could only remember that Buena Vista was a sanctuary for our family as we returned from camp, and we had no place to go. And so we lived there for many years, and that opened or, or allowed our church to um, open our space to immigrant families, and then most recently um, opening our parsonage to um, immigrant prisoners who were just recently released from San Quentin. Many of us who were in the redress movement know that the JLA, Japanese Latin Americans redress, is still to be done. And now, especially with the call for African-American Black reparations, Indigenous peoples reparations, that is certainly part of our picture. On Wings, you're listening to Nisei and Sansei Japanese American women looking back and ahead. Produced and hosted by Ricky Ejima. Some of those who were interned received reparations. This survivor took the chance to visit Paris. I remember I was born and lived in a place that had no running water, no electricity. So um, electricity was very important to me because I heard my parents talk about Paris all their lives. So I didn't know where it was. And I remember them showing me pictures in Japanese magazines about Eiffel Tower and things like that. So I always wanted, you know, was curious about Paris. And I finally, I was able to go and visit there and also had a place to stay, which is very important in Paris, especially being in the middle of town where my daughter lives. My Having my three wonderful children and turning out the way they turned out is just marvelous to me. My name is Eiko Yamamoto Matsuoka, and I just celebrated my 94th birthday in February. I grew up on our family farm in Cortez in Central Valley of California. We had no luxuries, but we felt a sense of belonging to a strong community. We had lots of church and school activities and community picnics. At the picnics, I remember sharing lunch outside with musubi, kemono, and other Japanese foods. There were three-legged races and potato sack races. I never won, but it was fun. I also have fond memories of going to the county fair. My father gave us 50 cents each to spend for the whole evening, which included four rides and 10 cents left over for treats. 
when President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066. My family and I were among the 120,000 people forced to move to internment camps. We ended up well over a thousand miles away in a Machi camp near Granada, a small town in southeastern Colorado. Although we grew up with very little except the encouragement of my parents, I was able to pursue my education. At 18, I took a train from camp to Berkeley with $20 and a paper bag full of tuna sandwiches made by camp kitchen crew. At UC Berkeley, I worked as a schoolgirl for room and board. Later at UC San Francisco School of Nursing, I was required to stay in the dorms. Dorm life was so easy in, by comparison. I didn't have to wash dishes or clean house. My proudest achievements are getting a good education and having passed down my parents' value of education to my three children. Life hasn't been easy, but I've had a chance to travel. My most interesting and meaningful was going to Japan for the first time in my early 60s and visiting Yamaguchi, where my parents grew up. I never met my grandparents, so it was special to meet my aunt and cousins for the first time. It was interesting to visit the family cemetery and see how the family took such good care to keep it clean. You can imagine I have seen a lot in my 94 years. The most amazing inventions to me are the computers, iPhone, and internet. I like learning all three and I can talk to my friends. And after we were married, we were going to Las Vegas and I said, I know how to drive it. This is a just straight highway through the desert. And so he said, well, I'm going to rest. And we switched seats. And then he fell asleep. And it used to take, I forgot, like 10 hours to go from the Bay Area uh, to Las Vegas. And all of a sudden, he kind of woke up. He says, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm driving. And he says, are you trying to beat that car? I was go 120 miles an hour. Oh. 110, 110, and then I was trying to get to 120 because there it's only two lanes, and this guy was trying to beat me. Oh. <laughs> and I said, he's trying to beat me all the time. And he said, let him beat you. You just stay in the slow lane. I said, no. And, and he just happened to open his eyes, and he says, pull over, pull over. And he made me pull over. <laughs> and he, he was tired, but he got on the other side, and he drove. My name is Yayawada. I'm 101 years old. And uh, today um, I'm having uh, my granddaughter Joy. She'll be helping me as a, uh, because I'm 101 years old. <laughs> my proudest achievement would have to be that I was able to work in a job that I never thought I would be able to work in. Uh, I worked for Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo Bank, 
and because I had no experience, uh, we were all desperately looking for jobs. The one job I did not want was anything that had to do with money. I, I never wanted to be responsible for anybody's money. So the job that I was offered uh, happened to be with a bank. <laughs> How did you get that job then? I went to a, a, an employment office and um, told them I wasn't, I knew I was not qualified for any place. Uh, my father had run a, um, a laundry ever since uh, I could remember. Uh, he ran a plant. Uh, that's where all the big equipments are. Uh, and because uh, I was there, and from the time I was a baby, I began to learn how to uh, service the uh, equipment besides doing the bookkeeping and answering the telephones and the customers. Anyway, when I got through talking to the employment lady, she said, you can do a lot of things. I got just a place for you. And the place that, that she uh, sent me to was to this bank. And I got a job there immediately. Um, what was the job when you were first hired? My first job was as a file clerk a fire clerk, which is the beginning, the lowest uh, job that uh, uh, are, are qualified. Anybody that with high school education uh, was there. So I worked with a lot of young people that right out of high school, but they were so friendly and uh, we all got along fine. And I was able to work myself, I stayed there and was able to work myself up from a fire clerk to a personnel manager. But but the one thing that, that made me smile when I think about camp, I was put in Topaz. That's in the middle of a desert in Utah. Uh, we were in a um, barracks. Barrack. I lived on one end and this family lived on the other end. There was a little boy there about two years old. And every morning, the only way he would start his day was to run up to my, my uh, apartment, they called it, and uh, say hi to me. And um, uh, he wouldn't uh, start his day until he, he got to say hi to me. So that made his mother unhappy sometimes, I'm sure. But uh, to this day, I see this little boy once in a while. It brings me uh, Korean dramas, DVDs, give me something to look at, and just to check up on me, I think. His name at that time in camp was Yoichi, his Japanese name. He was about two years old. He never walked any place. He ran. And... Well, he's not a two-year-old boy anymore, but he still makes sure to come by and say hello to you, right? And now he's the grandfather, <laughs> and uh, his name, of course, is not Yoichi anymore. 
Hi, George. <laughs> George Ferrici. <laughs> and he's going to be upset with me. <laughs> but that's the only memory I have. I, every time I think about this little boy in camp, in camp uh, it makes me laugh. It makes me smile. My name is Ricky Ajima of Buena Vista United Methodist Church in Alameda, and I am a Yonsei, fourth generation Japanese American. As I'm inspired by the interviewees in this video, I'm equally inspired by my grandmother, Marion Tami Oishi Suzuki, a survivor of Topaz incarceration camp. In the spring of 2004, at her alma mater, Oakland Technical High School, my grandma ended her commencement speech with a call to action. Quote, let us affirm our faith in our country by upholding its wonderful principle of justice for all. Let us each be a fearless ambassador for real freedom for everyone." End quote. Met with roaring applause from the audience, I read these words today and am reminded to continue to fight for equity and justice for those at the margins. Grateful for those who came before me and the work of those who fought for my civil rights, I understand that the fight for Black, brown, queer, neurodivergent, and lower income justice is far from over. May we all continue to fight with courage and gaman. You're not drawn to an organization. You're drawn to an issue where there is inequality or injustice. In the making, I was witnessing, listening. Seen this old Japanese lady with a sticker on a rock and said, free Mumia and this was before the Trustafarians were saying it. must be more vocal, visible, and take stands on crucial issues. Hopefully, Asians will side with the most dispossessed, oppressed, and marginalized, remembering our own history. We Asians need to reshape our image from the rather quiet, ambiguous, accommodating, uncomplaining, palatable people to a more resolute, sensitive advocate for human worth, human rights, and human dignity. I am Ricky Ajima. Thank you, Ricky Ajima, and also Margot Okazawa Ray of KPFA Women's Magazine for sharing this content. Japanese Canadians, too, suffered property seizures and internment during World War II. In 1988, both U.S. President Reagan and Canadian Prime Minister Mulroney offered apologies and equivalent reparations. Canadian Joy Kogawa wrote novels about the internment and the reparations campaign. She now has an interactive augmented reality game, East of the Rockies, available from the National Film Board of Canada. snow. Most people just called me Yuki. Months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, 
My family left our home for the last time. We're in Bay Farm Camp, sharing a 16 by 16 hut with another woman, Maria, and her twin babies. Before dad was taken away, he said he didn't think women and kids would have to leave, but if we did, he said we should only take what we could not part with. Dad was happy to see we'd brought the small record player. Every night before bed, he sits with his eyes closed and listens. I think he's pretending we're home. You don't realize what you take for granted until it's gone. There are moments when I look at the mountains, and it's so beautiful I could cry. Then I remember why we're here, and I do. Wings thanks our supporters, including your local community radio station, Suzette Cullen, and Genevieve Vaughn, whose Zoom Salon series is found at maternalgifteconomymovement.org. The Wings sound logo is from Libana's album, A Circle is Cast. I'm Frida Worden. This is the Women's International News Gathering Service. It's 10.30 a.m., and it's time for Film at 11 here on KBOO Community Radio, Portland. First up is Britta Gordon on Joanna Hogg's autobiographical tale, The Souvenir. I had begun an exploration of the works of Adam Curtis, the British documentarian who pulls from a profusion of visual sources to create his on-screen meditations, but I got derailed a bit. After reading through a list of his favorite films and meandering into one of them, Joanna Hogg's A Souvenir. A Souvenir is one of several of Hogg's films currently offered on Canopy, a streaming service free via Multnomah County Library. Not a few articles describe her as the British indie darling, and just a few details of her biography might indicate why. She apparently began making films with a camera, borrowed from experimental filmmaker Derek Jarman after a chance meeting. And she's worked with notable actors such as Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton on her early films. Why does Curtis, whose projects have been described as collages that fuse sociology, psychology, and political history via archival footage and sound clips, pick her? Here's his take on Souvenir. Hogg, he says, chronicles the inner life of the social class 